0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by a few of my colleagues. Of course, we've got Chris, Chris Drees, the Deputy Chief Economist. Hey, Chris.
1: Hey, Mark. How are you doing?
0: I am doing well. And you?
1: Yeah, same here. Same
0: Anything here. going on? In, you're, you're in the office in Westchester, PA. Anything going on in Westchester?
1: Uh, I got a little bit of a cold November rain here, so
2: oh. that's about it. He didn't get it, Chris. He didn't get
1: it. You didn't get it? It's a no. Guns N'
2: Roses. Song, it's his right?
1: favorite band.
2: <laughs> uh, oh, Guns N' Roses.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> oh, oh, you have to go back. Uh, give it a listen.
0: It okay. A listen. Okay. Very good. I yeah, I did. That was right over my
1: head. Oh, sorry it, about it, that.
0: Yeah, and of course Dan White. Dan, uh, hey. that was Dan's voice. Hey, Dan. Hey, Mark. You look warm. You look much warmer than here. I am, but i'm I'm not gonna tell you where. i I am a little warmer than you are, uh, but uh, but uh, looking forward to being back in good old Pennsylvania relatively soon, uh, making my way back. And uh, Emily, uh, Emily Mandel, Emily's good to have you.
3: Yeah, good to be here.
0: Yeah, and Emily, this is your second time.
3: Second on- one. The first one was the one where we introduced the world here newfound love of Guns N' Roses so apparently that oh, has not started. persisted since <laughs> well, then now it's
0: apropos okay I actually I'll have to tell you the digger I deep into Guns N' Roses the less I was impressed I know mean, that sounds bad and I'm sure I'm going to get male but is I, I didn't you know the top three four or five songs are fantastic and then after that I I don't know it didn't, didn't resonate with me
2: you don't need to go too much deeper than that
0: OK, OK, fine. You can listen to the four or five songs forever. Yeah. But uh, yeah, very good. You know what? You know what group I've run into recently that I really like? And Maybe this reveals too much about me. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, 1975. Have you heard of 1975? No. I think it's a Generation Z thing. I think it is. You know, there, we're going to come back and talk about the election. But did you hear about this young fella? I believe in the Orlando area who was elected to Congress. He's like 25. Yeah. Time. The
3: first Gen Z one. Yeah. He's
0: yeah. Gen Z, right. Gen Z. So I was listening to a NPR interview of him in, and uh he was saying, Oh, I'm going to go, go to a, a 1975 concert. And I go, that's my band. That's my band. So believe
2: it or not, I'm, I'm, I'm right in there with the Gen Z. That's why you don't get guns and roses. Cause you're just younger and hipper than all of us. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I, I It's like, and
0: uh, now I'm definitely going to get mail. <laughs> it's like the Maroon 5 of the Gen Z generation. And they're going to say, Maroon 5? Who the hell's Maroon 5? Do you, you guys know who Maroon 5 yeah, is? Yeah, we know Maroon 5. Yeah, <laughs> Everyone knows Maroon 5. But it's good. I was like running on the treadmill the other day with 1975. They got really catchy, upbeat, you know, melodic. You know, it's really, really nice uh, music. So anyway, yeah. Um, uh, I'm always looking for music for my treadmill. I need I need that music. Okay, and of course, Dan, Dan runs uh, anything government-related for us, and Emily is our maven on state and local government issues. Uh, they're here because we had the midterm elections this week, and clearly we want to talk about that and what it means for uh, economic policy. But before we do that, uh, go down that path, of course, the other big news this week, Economic news was the consumer price index report, CPI report, inflation, inflation's top of mind, and a uh, lot to talk about there. But uh, uh, let me turn this back to uh, Chris. And I, I, well, I was going to say something else, but I won't say it. You can tell I'm in a good mood. I'm in a good mood uh, for we'll lots, of it that way. lots of different reasons. Lots of different reasons. One of which is that CPI report. I it really put me into a good frame <laughs> of mind. Uh, we thank goodness uh, for that report. But anyway, Chris, give us the rundown.
1: Yeah, thank good. I think last week we were talking labor report, and we had that little debate about bad news being good news, good news being bad news. I think this week we can definitively say CPI inflation was good news. Being,
0: hey, good Chris, news. can I say one thing on that? Yeah, we move on, and then
1: I want to interrupt you.
0: Uh, okay, <laughs> and I'm I'm not I'm notoriously bad at this, but I, we were nervous about whether people what people would think of that. Someone called it bickering. And actually that's the right word for it. We were bickering. <laughs> we were bickering. And I, we were nervous. Well, well, what will people think of that bickering? I think people like that bickering. Would you know that seems
1: yeah. I, I was surprised. I didn't think they would at all. It was kind of like watch to me it was like watching uh five year olds play soccer. But uh, you know, that that's entertaining <laughs> as well, right? So, uh, yeah, but I've got right. a lot of I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. That's oh, you know, one thing that I think there's this myth that we are some monolith here at in the at moody's analytics right that oh, yeah. there's only one opinion and that's it nobody else has any other difference so i think they appreciated that you know we listen we debate we uh are in search of a a truth here and uh you know it gave them a little insight into into some of that uh backstory if you will
0: yeah, yeah so if you were a artist. listener to this podcast you should go back and listen to that one and, and by the way that did generate some really interesting email conversation internally about forecasting Well uh, mm-hmm. yeah. from Camille Kovar, who's been on the podcast before, in particular. And I'm, I started writing a a, a response, but it, it, the the email he wrote to me was so full of interesting things. It's going to take me a while to respond to
2: it all, but I thought it was really cool. Daniel, you're going to I was just going to say, disagreeing with Mark is one of the funnest parts about working here. Absolutely. That, you can, absolutely you can disagree with your boss and not get fired because that's the whole point is we're supposed to be debating and, and talking about this
0: oh i thought you were going to say because you can always win those debates i thought that's what you were going to say <laughs>
2: well, it's the best part about economics it, de- <laughs> it depends right so i think i won the debate and you think you won the debate we're all happy at the end of the day everyone's happy great great profession great profession yeah
1: anyway well back great. to the cpi uh, back
0: to the cpi we're far away.
1: uh good news was good news. Uh, Headline CPI was 7.7% year over year. That's down from 8.2% in uh, September. And I I believe the high was 9.1% in June. So we are moving in the right direction and actually moved a a bit more uh, swiftly than uh, I think either we or consensus anticipated in in terms of the the, uh, decline. Even more encouraging was the core. right? So stripping out uh, food and energy prices, that's down to 6.3% on a year-over-year basis, 0.3% uh, month over month. Had it had grown uh, 0.6% month over month uh, back in September, so that's an, a nice improvement, uh, again in the right direction. Uh, in terms of what are the factors that uh, uh, led to the improvement, we had we saw we finally saw some uh, significant uh, improvement in used car prices, right down 2.4% on the month. We had been anticipating that for a while. Other data was uh, indicating that. And now it's finally uh, materialized to a larger degree in the CPI. Apparel prices are down. So I think we're also starting to see the supply chain effects kind of work themselves out. So we maybe even have too much inventory when it comes to a- apparel because of the over-ordering that got, went on during the pandemic. So prices are coming in there. And then uh, uh, medical, care, uh, spent, uh, medical care came in. There's a little bit of a quirk there though, related to health insurance. I'll yeah. Briefly say, I don't know if you how much you want to get into this, Mark. But
0: yeah, uh I think you need to just a little bit because it was a it dec- uh, health insurance pre- pre- premiums actually fell. And yeah, it contributed meaningfully to the weaker core CPI number. So maybe you can just dive into, the, maybe not go all the way to the bottom of the ocean here, but maybe halfway down.
1: You know, yeah, a and I, I think we talked about this maybe last time, actually, because uh, in our discussion, but um, you know, healthcare, uh, pre- health insurance premiums are, are difficult to measure, right? And they were down a lot this month, so it's down 4% month over month, right? So a huge decline, uh, relatively uh, speaking. But health insurance is, uh, well, it's notoriously difficult to actually uh, measure uh, properly, right? Uh, the premiums that uh, that uh, employees are paying uh, can change, but the plan can change as well. So quality adjustments become really complicated. Um, we know that there are already issues when we think about how to quality adjust smartphones or computers and health insurance is, in some sense, I would argue, even more difficult. So there is this complex formula that uh Certainly, if you're interested, uh, go check out on the BLS's website. But essentially what they do is say, you know what, we're just gonna look at uh, the profits of health insurance companies. And those changes in profits on a year-over-year basis should be a, a, a good proxy for uh, changes in uh, prices, right? So if there are more profits uh, that the health insurance companies are accumulating, then that, uh, that, should, that implies that the, uh, yeah. the prices of health insurance have, have gone up as well. What happened was with the with the pandemic, right? Even, we had a lot of um, we had insurance premiums being paid in, but not a lot of uh, claims being paid out at the height of the pandemic, right? There was a lot of elective surgery that was uh, postponed, right? So uh, health insurance companies actually, on paper, looked as though they they, or they actually did make a large profits back in in 2021. Now as a year later, we're starting to see that unwind, right? So now we are going back to the doctor, we are going back to the hospitals. Those profits are coming in. And again, based on this quirk in the the timing, it looks as though uh, the prices of health insurance premiums are coming down based on this methodology. In reality, we know that employees are kind of paying the same or perhaps more in terms of their actual premiums. So this is again one of those quirks or anomalies in the CPI, Calculation in this case, it's working in favor of uh, putting downward pressure on inflation. It's going to continue to do so, probably uh, for the better part of 2023 as well. Now, it's not a huge part of the consumer basket; right? it's less than a percent. So, it's a big number in terms of the, the decline in um, in the insurance premiums paid, but in terms of the overall impact on uh, core inflation, it's relatively small.
0: So, uh, mm. taking a step back, yeah. It, it- feels like today the report for October suggests that inflation has definitively rolled over
1: it's 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 peaked it's coming in um, oh i don't like to use definitively anymore with the inflation <laughs> That's good point. but, That's but good you point. know we've burned, been burned, but it's it, it appears that way certainly it's coming and in Unless something else changes
0: unless correct oil prices spike or
1: yeah, yeah covid
0: lockdown in china or whatever assuming nothing goes off the rails it feels like it's peaked
1: yeah, the trend seems to be downward. The speed might yeah. be different, but uh
0: right. And that in that uh very small smallish, let's call it, decline in core CPI in the month 0.3%, because they had been coming in 0. 0.5, 0. 6. 0.6. yeah. Yeah, that that 0. 0.3 probably is overstated. The case here is overstated a bit because of this quirk with regard to health insurance. But it's still a case. There's still a yeah. case.
1: That inflation's- yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's say it's 0. 0.4, right? Worst case. Yeah. That's still improvement. All right. So. Right.
0: And of course, just for context, I mean, for inflation to be back to the Federal Reserve's target on CPI inflation, which is a little bit different than the uh, consumer expenditure deflator measure of inflation, which is what the Fed typically is targeting. But looking at CPI inflation, it feels like we need to start getting... Point twos, point one, maybe thrown in there every once in a while to get it down to about somewhere in the mid twos, you know, two and a half percentish, something like that. So we, we're, we're, you know, the point three is is good. Yeah, we'll take it. it clearly, the stock market took it. You know, they loved it. Uh, bond market took it. Yeah. They loved it. Uh, but uh, but you know, to actually get back to the Fed's target, we got a ways to still. We still have yeah. a ways. To
1: I think they might have loved it a little too much. Uh, might have extrapolated a little bit there. But, but yeah, yeah. We no yeah, I
0: mean, jumped all over it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: right. Uh, but before we go there, uh, any other thing in the things in the report you want to call out? Uh, any other aspects of the report you want to call out? I, I noticed that food price inflation still strong, but that moderated, yep. which is we've been waiting for that as well, right? Because uh, diesel prices have come in and a big part of the cost of food is transporting the food from the farm to the store
1: shelf and lower diesel prices help. so i noticed that anything else you notice in, in the report uh housing uh, so shelter is the other big one right we've been talking we've been saying that that's going to continue to be a drag on inflation or pro- keep continue propping up inflation to be specific uh, for a while it actually did moderate a bit rents are growing through 0.7% versus 0.8 so that's that's encouraging, but uh, lots of script yet to be written there. So, you know, it's still too high. <laughs> right. So, um, it, at least for another couple of quarters, I would think we're going
0: to continue. Yeah. The other thing I noticed track. is there's some, some things that made me feel better about the future. Right. So for example, mm-hmm. new vehicle prices that continue to increase. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's that ha- there's gravity is going to set in there at some point once vehicle production uh, production around the world normalizes. It's I think vehicle production here in the US is normalized, you know, back to pre-pandemic levels, but not in Germany, not Japan where uh, a lot of cars are produced and we you know here in the US consume a lot of those cars and vehicles. But as that production normalizes, what you would expect with the with the uh, easing of supply chain issues all around the world, we're going to see more production, rebuilding of inventory and we should start to see new vehicle prices at least least level out, but I would even expect some declines, right? And that yeah. that also sounds like a small component of the CPI, but there's these have been big, big changes. And you know, if they go away or go down, that could have some meaningful meaningful impact on core as well.
1: Yeah, the price is moderated. I mean they're not growing as fast as I recall new vehicles are, I think they were 0. 0.7 and now they're point 0.4 Yeah. month yeah. over month. So I, I,
0: I think our colleague Mike Brisson who was a great an you know, economist for the vehicle industry points out that it, this is reflecting the 2023 model year these prices, mm-hmm. and because pricing has been so strong, they've raised those 23 MSR, so-called MSRP's, those prices, the listed prices, and that's what's flowing through right now. But on on the other side of this, as you move make your way into early next year, we should start to see some meaningful moderation, uh, at least a flattening out of vehicle new vehicle prices. At some point, I would expect a decline. But that made me that made me a little bit more uh, gave me some encouragement about, you know, inflation in the future.
2: To to back that up, Mark, we were just at a conference. Actually, Emily, I were at a conference the other day. And for the first time, I think, in any conference I've ever been at with state officials, the people from Michigan were maybe the most optimistic in the room. They are never the most optimistic people in the room, but they were so excited that, you know, the microchips were finally showing up for some of those cars and some of those cars were starting to roll off the lots that I've never seen them excited as they were.
0: Oh, is that right? Okay, that's interesting. Uh, so revenues are—they're are, confident in revenues because we're going to get more cars, uh,
2: more vehicle sales, uh, more production. Yeah. Right, and they're ramping up production again for the first time because they, they didn't have any chips to put in the car so they ramped it down for the long.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Hey, hey, Chris. Um, yeah. You, met, you mentioned the um, market reaction. Uh, what was the reaction with regard to what it means for monetary policy? If you look at the futures market for the federal funds rate, which is the key interest rate the Fed controls, do you have a sense of what they're saying now?
1: Yeah, it came in, um, in. Well, at least immediately. I didn't check it today. I probably should. Um, but uh, yeah, now the, yeah, the assumption is the Fed may not have to be quite as aggressive in terms of hiking rates and the terminal rate may not have to go to whatever, 6%. As some were thinking, so it might a more modest uh, reaction if, if, infl- if in fact, inflation is coming in and can stay on this downward path. So,
0: so I think it solidifies the idea that the Fed's going to raise the fund rate in at the December
1: FOMC meeting. Yes, by half a point. Right, right. There had been higher probability on a seventy-five going right. in, and now that reverse. At least last time I looked, fifty was the. Was the majority opinion,
0: and that's what we've been expecting—a fifty yep. base point, half point increase—and the terminal rate, the so-called terminal rate, the highest the rate's going to get in this cycle, I think, uh, was this was I think you mentioned was well over five percent. Yeah, is it still over five?
1: No, it- I, I think uh, believe it was. It's like a quarter point higher than ours, right? There was so, one so extra hike. So our peak is and four
0: and three quarters. So it's it's about it's a like a,
1: it's as high that as range. Five, yeah, perhaps? yeah. We're 75 okay. to five, right? Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. And, and of course, the stock market had a really a good day, right? The Dow is up 1,200 points, I believe. Uh, and I think the market now, the stock market is not even down 20% from its uh, all-time Peak. highs at the beginning of the year. So uh, I guess investors are trying to time the, uh, p- the end of this rate hiking cycle because they know as soon as it's clear that the Fed is going to stop raising rates... Then that's a, that's a signal to buy stocks and and thus uh, thus the reaction. But you feel like that's premature.
1: I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's one report. It's a good report, no doubt. Um, you want to hear a negative? Well, uh, gas prices, all right. Energy prices went back up, not a lot, but you know they had been coming in and they they could uh, bounce back up again. So
0: yeah, I think that's the key. I mean, if, if oil prices stay where they are. You know, yep. I think West Texas Intermediate is just south of ninety dollars a barrel. Brent uh, is just north of ninety dollars a barrel, and that's kind of sort of we, where we've been now for the past at least a couple three months. Gasoline prices have settled in just south of four dollars a gallon nationwide. They had peaked at five dollars at all time high back in June. We're down below four. If they stay there, and that's our that's our baseline forecast. Obviously, a lot of risk around mm-hmm. that, given EU sanctions on oil, given Potential OPEC production, more production cuts, uh, given uh, the uh, the brinkmanship with Russia <clears throat> over a cap on on oil prices. But if that stays the case, then on a uh, because we got the big increases in oil and gasoline prices beginning very late last year, going into early 2022, on a year over year basis we're going to start to see some real moderation in energy gasoline prices. And that's going to take a big bite out of top line inflation. In fact, yep. I think if you do the arithmetic, as you said, right now, we're point seven 7.7% 7, 7. on CPI inflation year over year. <clears throat> I think by, you know, April, uh, by March, April, and that period, May, we should be down near 4% on, on top line inflation, I think, just on a year over year basis. So, um, but that does depend on oil prices remaining stable. Does that sound so right it, to
1: you? So that's taking out the uh, energy, food, right? So you're, I guess, you're translating it into energy, food, and the supply chain constrained, right? Those either go flat or roll over, yeah, as you put it, and
0: just simply down go down. flat. Yeah. Simply yeah. go flat. Then on a year-over-year basis, because you had that big surge, right. you know, late last year, early this, then on a year-over-year basis, it really starts to come out. Yeah. It's really going to be. The that next, that yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. the next two and a half or so, or two,
0: and that goes back to uh, the, the labor market, wage growth, uh, and of course that drives the healthcare inflation, other service price inflation. We need to get that. That's going to be a little bit more. Well, it's going
1: to be a lot more difficult to get yeah. back, and on. the shelter, right? and, so oh, and of course, the, the that's going to continue but there to...
0: too. I'm feeling really pretty good about that as well, because market rents you know, the current lease up rents, there's a lot of weakness in rents and that will translate over by this time next year starting getting into much more moderate rent, uh, housing cost inflation, right?
1: Yeah, by this time next year. That's So that's still, you know, a ways away. It's not going to be immediate. So don't expect, I think there's a misconception that, oh, because the rent, asking rents are coming down pretty rapidly, then CPI is going to pick it up rapidly too or within a few months. But it does take some time for those um was asking rents to work themselves through uh, the CPI calculations, at least on the yep. year-over-year uh, portion of it, right?
0: But, but you know the kind of the, and I, I've articulated this a number of times now on the podcast. But just to restate it to make mm-hmm. make it clear, the key, and obviously we're spending a lot of time on inflation because that's key to interest rates and key to you know what it means for the economy in terms of recession risks and that kind of thing. But over the next three six months, we're going to I expect improvement in inflation. Just the base effects, you know, meaning those year over year base effects we just talked about because of stable oil prices and easing of supply chain issues. We also get a bit of benefit from new vehicle prices if they start to come in as we get more vehicle production. Then by the second half of next year, we get benefit from slower growth in the cost of housing because of what we're observing now with regard to market rents. That takes six, 12 months to translate over into CPI uh, housing cost inflation. And then it's the first half of 2024 when I would expect to see a moderation uh, in service price inflation, because at that point, the labor market should be weak enough, long enough, wage growth slow enough that that takes uh, the, the uh, pressure off the service side. And we start to see service uh, service uh, inflation moderate and and that's when we come back into the the, uh, the Fed's target of about mid of mid twos. That that's kind of the path as I see forward.
2: Mark, can I ask a question about that? We, we were just talking to some clients about this the other day, and the the question was that we agree that you know that last two two and a half percentage points is going to be the toughest to kind of squeeze out. If we run into more trouble than we expected to at that time, squeezing that last two two and a half percentage points out, is that? Higher rates, or is that high rates for longer at the Fed or both?
0: Yeah, and I think that's the crux of the matter. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, there's two key ri- risks to the outlook I gave. There's many risks, but two key ones. The first is we talked about oil prices and how that goes. Second one is what you just mentioned, and that is maybe, uh, you know, the wage growth remains more persistent and entrenched, and you get more of that kind of self-reinforcing wage price dynamic that is very difficult to ring out. You can't ring it out unless you have a recession to do so, you know, how much higher unemployment. But, you know, I think at this point, uh, my sense is based on last week's FLMC meeting, that it may be the case that the Fed doesn't raise rates. uh, It it goes up to where we say it's going to go four and three quarters, five percent by early next year and stays there for a while and maintains that higher that the kind of that high terminal rate for an extended period well into 2024 so you know they by not raising rates more aggressively they reduce the risk of generating some kind of financial event and also generate causing a recession but they keep pressure on the economy uh, with that high rate that and that rate obviously is above it, the so-called equilibrium rate which is consistent with, with uh you know the monetary policy that's not supportive or restrictive to economic growth and it just keeps it there the fed keeps it there at that four and three quarters percent five percent well into 2024 to make sure that the economy flows slow sufficiently that we get that wage growth down and inflation back into the box that, that, yeah. i think that's kind of their thinking now the strategy that they're going to pursue my guess and that's in our forecast that's what we have in our forecast
2: It'll be interesting to see how it plays out, especially because there's a, a, you know, a day in November at the end of that, that you're talking about that all this is going to play. Into.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great point. I mean, uh, how this all plays out, obviously will be critical to the presidential election in, in 2024, uh, because, you know, if it, if inflation doesn't go back into the box gracefully without a recession, then obviously that that has all kinds of implications for, you know, how that, that election is going to play out. Um, okay. any uh, Chris, anything else on the inflation front? Uh, I mean, let me ask you this, based on our, our bickering from last week, does this change your view at all with regard to the risks? Uh, I mean, you were at 70% probability recession uh, starting yeah. sometime between now and the end of 2023. Is that still the same? Any change there?
1: I'm data dependent, so of course. I, yeah. This this plus uh, plus the Phillies uh, losing the World <laughs> oh, Series, uh, you know, has brought my uh, odds down to 67%. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I know. Ooh. Big big move. Big move.
0: <laughs> Actually, that's a bigger move than people think it is, right?
1: <laughs> it's, uh, it's borderline. You explain why. You want to explain why? Well, that's our uh, our threshold for making a change to the forecast is uh, two thirds, uh, two thirds right. probability. Um, so I would still make the change. I still think we need a little bit more slowing in our baseline, but uh, getting closer closer to that knife's edge. If we get a, a few more reports like this, that narrow path the Fed is on could be realized. So.
0: Ooh, ooh! Did you hear that, Dan? Emily. Did you get that? I've said that from
1: the beginning. Thirty percent chance of that occurring, right, from the beginning.
3: Uh, (laughs) Still pretty low. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Hey Emily, did you under did you uh, get uh, Chris's reference to the Phillies?
3: Uh, no, I didn't. I mean, I I know they lost.
0: (laughs) Are you you, a Phillies (laughs) fan?
2: Are you Phillies fan? In her defense, she lives in Massachusetts.
3: I mean, I, I, I did the Astros. I saw that happen, but I don't know the. Significance this regarding the recession probabilities and data. Oh, yeah, it's, big, oh it's in
1: Mark's Twitter feed, right? You, oh, you, no. you oh, missed that one? That. Oh, he's not, yeah.
0: he's not he's, Are you a follower, Emily? Are you I
3: follower? am, but you know, yeah. I'm going to just blame a Twitter meltdown for not seeing it. So, uh, you know, very,
0: you're right. You're right. There's been a bit of a meltdown in Twitter land. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a lot of
2: storm and drang. Dan, do you, you know what he's talking about, right? Yeah. I actually, one of my students at Villanova brought it up to me as a reason why they should get off class the day, the day after game 7. I said if you get, if they make it to game 7, I will give you Monday morning off uh class and they lost in game 6, everybody was very upset. I bet that <laughs> was. Yeah, Chris, you want to explain to the listener
0: what I this? think you
1: should. You you're the you're the progenitor of this, right? Well, at least Okay, the...
0: very very simply and I think we uh, we've talked about it before. So the Phillies won a World Series in 1929. Or, or it was the precursor to the 1929 Phillies. 1929 and 1930. And 1930. And they were the athletics at the time, but, you know, the precursor to the Phillies. Yeah. They won in 2008. Oh, oh no, goodness. they won in 1930. 80. No, wait, 1929, 1930, 19, 1980, yeah. 1980, sorry, and 2008, right? Oh. So, uh, Emily, what happened in, in those years?
3: Well, recessions. Big time, um, right? Yeah, big
0: time recession. So, See, originally um, I was
3: unhappy about the Phillies losing, but now I'm kind of reassessing that.
2: Exactly. I country. can say that
3: because I don't live in Philly anymore.
2: When you right. were going to get your morning coffees at Wawa, were you asking people about that? Because when I asked people around right here, I explained to them that that you know, correlation does not mean causation. But every one of them said, "Totally worth it." <laughs> totally worth it. We'll take it.
0: We'll take it. No problem. <laughs> Massive recession, financial crisis, Phillies were in the World Series. Uh, we're going with the Phillies. We're going they the were okay Series. with
2: it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Very good. Okay. Kind of the priorities. Of yeah, yeah, I think it's a good segue into uh, obviously the other massive event uh, last week or this week, and that's the midterm elections. And, uh, you know, I don't know how, how to begin the discussion, but maybe I'll just turn it to you, Dan. Do you want to give us a sense of, you know, the state of play and
2: anything else you want to say about it before we turn to what it might mean for the economy? Sure. Yeah. I think the, the big takeaway is that nobody got what they everything that they wanted and everybody got at least a little bit of what they wanted. So it just means that we're just about as divided as we were before the election. But there are some interesting trends that came through. So the, the Republicans, as of this recording, haven't officially won control of the House, but they're probably likely to win control of the House. Uh, we probably won't know who has control of the Senate until Georgia has their runoff. Um, but either way, it's going to be a very, very divided Congress with probably one party in charge of one House and one party in charge of the other, um, but neither of them having a really significant um, hold on power in either one of those. So it's going to be some very interesting nuances in some of those votes. If the Republicans uh, really do win the House, there are some uh There are some folks who maybe not as um, core to the the Republican constituency who have some power, uh, who may not have had power before. I was just reading an article about how interesting it'll be when they try and bring up a vote on the $10,000 cap for state and local government when a bunch of their new congressmen are from New York and New Jersey, right? Are they really going to vote against the $10,000 cap? Mm. Um, And on the Democratic side, you've got some uh, folks who are from uh, maybe more working class backgrounds who maybe vote differently than the, the normal Democrats do. And so the the normal consensus within each party is really not going to be as, as firm as maybe it has been in previous elections. And so what that means is, and you and know, I have talked about this past, probably nothing gets done other than keeping the lights on for the next two years or so, which has some some upsides for the economic outlook, um, but certainly some downsides as well.
0: Well, before we go there, Emily, let me, let me turn to you. Anything you want to point out with regard to the election? And you know, again, it, it's still... Ballots are still being counted in some key states, and we're going to have a runoff election uh, for Senate in Georgia, which is going to determine whether it feels like uh, it's going to determine whether the Republicans or the Democrats uh, control the Senate. Um, any anything else you want to point out? I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on at the state level as well. Correct.
3: Yeah. And I mean, at the state level, I think it's in some ways it's kind of the reverse of what Dan is saying. Like we came into this election with very few um you know, state governments having divided control by historical standards. And that actually intensified a little bit with this election. Like we had two states, I think it was Michigan and Minnesota flip so that they're now the same party as the governor. And then Democrat. Democrat yeah, of course. Yeah. And then, you know, with the caveat that a couple races haven't yet been called for the governorship, it looks like there'll be maybe eight or nine houses that are or eight or nine governments that are divided, which is just really low if you think about it. So I think implications for that is these places will have quite a bit of, you know, ability to make changes, to make tax changes, to make different changes to law. So we could see some more, um, you know, less gridlock at the state level than we're potentially going to see at the federal level for the next couple of years.
0: So, but just to uh, try to uh, synthesize what, what what both of you just said feels like to me the bottom line is it just means we are very divided and very closely divided. Uh, You know, I mean, it it looks like the Republicans are going to win the House, but they're going to win the House by what, Dan, Uh, five five seats or six seats? We can't tell
2: yet. They need 218 to have control, and it's looking like their last count I saw was like 222, 223 probably. But there are seven races that are totally toss-ups that no – news agencies coming out and calling either way. So it could be 2.30, it could be 2.22, so we don't know. Um, But neither side can really call, uh, they got a little bit of what they wanted, but neither side can say, you know, we definitively won this election. The Democrats, they lost the House probably, but they didn't lose it by nearly as much as they thought they would, so they're kind of energized. The Republicans didn't win, probably didn't win control of the Senate, or we don't know yet, but they certainly didn't win the House by as much as they thought they did, but you probably have a Republican speaker at the end of all of this. So it's really kind of, nobody got, everything that they wanted, and so both sides are going to probably steer that towards energizing their base as opposed to to working towards the middle, unfortunately.
0: And, of course, just to to make sure everyone understands, you need 218, correct? 218. 218 to control the Uh, House of Representatives. And and, uh, if the the Republicans sweeped all of the uh, outstanding elections, what would they have? Do you know? How many uh,
2: House? It would be almost 240. 240? Yeah, but there are okay. probably and I, I'm probably butchering this, but there's there's at least ten of those that are that probably have no way of going Republican that are very lean Dem. They're just waiting for the count. So my best case for the Republicans is probably somewhere around two thirty. The probable case is somewhere two twenty three, two 225, somewhere around there.
0: Oh my good. So the the mar. So the most likely scenario is the Republicans win the House, but they win the House with about a five six. Seat majority, which is kind of sort of what the I think that's exactly what the Democrats just had in the last you, Congress.
2: Yeah, they probably win maybe one or two a one or two seat larger majority than the Democrats have now.
0: Yeah. One thing, and this goes now we're kind of more uh, kind of uh, moving into the, what it means for policy, but one other political uh, question is okay, say the Republicans win the House, uh, McCarthy becomes the speaker of the house kevin mccarthy uh, becomes the speaker of the house because it's such a slim and he has five seat six major, uh, seat majority which is very thin what is what does that mean you know
2: in terms of his ability to
0: manage kind of any kind of consensus in the republican caucus
2: It's going to be really hard. I mean, it's going to be really hard. I mean, it's going to be hard. I I would, I would imagine, when we have the the election of the speaker um, next spring, it's probably, or sorry, the winter time, it's probably going to be way messier than usual. Usually, all that stuff is figured out in the back room somewhere, and we all come out and we vote, and that's the way it is. Um, But with some of the more um, diverse caucuses within the Republican Party, it, it might be more difficult to pull everybody together and. If it's that hard to pull them together on the speaker vote, I can't imagine how easy it's going to be to pull them together on things like the debt ceiling or some of the fiscal policy uh, decisions that are going to have to be made.
0: Oh, okay. So, Emily, you, you said you said something that and I, I don't think I, I got it until just now. What you were saying is at the federal level, because it's so close and because of what Jan was speaking about, it's going to be very difficult to get anything through into law but at the state level because it's become so polarized you're either a democratic state or a republican state you're either red or you're blue mm-hmm. all in it's much more likely you're going to get stuff done because it's one party that's
2: what you were saying
3: yeah exactly and i mean there's some
2: democracy
0: What's yeah that? i mean
3: there's
2: so you're going to see all the laboratories of democracy it, yeah exactly <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, going to get a
3: lot of interesting policies out there. Yeah, because the you know federal government's now going to be divided, and I mean it was really close before even, and we could see how much that you know um, impeded um, the Democrats' ability to get some things they wanted passed. But I think the real thing is that a lot of places you've got the same control in the legislature as you have in the government, and so that's you know with variations across how big those margins might be across states, it's going to mean that they're going to have a lot of ability to pass pass the law, pass laws, and you know, try out that new um, laboratory of democracy Dan mentioned. So.
0: You know, it's so funny for most of my life, I've always wondered, you know, why do we need to have states with such autonomy? I mean, the, the, you know, just seemed to be kind of a mess, didn't make a lot of sense to me. I, you know, I could never understand the Tom Jefferson view of the world where, you know, give states, you know, real power. Uh, I was kind of like always an Alexander Hamilton kind of guy, you know, c- centralized power. And now I go, oh, now I understand. Now I get it. It's not a bad thing, actually, really. You know, it, there's there's definitely disadvantages to it, but there are advantages. And that, to your point, Dan, it, it's a way to see what works,
2: what doesn't work. You know, you got 50 different uh, data points out
0: there to to use.
2: Yeah, we were very blessed to have both Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, because just one or the other would have made a really poor system of government. But having them both is what I think makes us great.
0: Yeah. And and I think, you know, the American political experience since its founding has been Tom Jefferson versus Alexander Hamilton. I mean, the whole way along, that battle continues to rage.
2: I mean, right. Uh, with both parties kind of switching sides over over the course of history, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. That's a great point.
0: Yeah. Hey, Chris. Before we move on to the um, uh, economic implications in more depth, anything you know from your vantage point on the election? Anything you want to call out?
1: Uh, I'm just happy that the republic held. Right, there was all these. uh, (laughs) uh, And I actually had uh, that's a really low bar. I know. (laughs) It's a bar. I, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I actually had clients. You know. Really concerned about uh, civil war, or, you know what? What are the implications? How do I calculate my losses if uh, there's, uh, you know, this type of disruption in the in the in the country once again? So uh, I think is it is uh, a testament to some of the self-correcting power uh, within our system that we can have an election. that seems like everyone is going to accept the results uh, to a large degree. Um, and I also think it was. Uh, a vote for the the middle way. I think uh, you know, Republicans, Democrats that were elected tend to be more centrist. I don't think there's gonna be although there will be grid like gridlock, I don't think there's gonna be a lot of tolerance for um, you know, uh policies or discussions, debates that are not central to the problems that are really uh facing us, right? So I think we'll have good debate. <laughs> we might not get a whole lot done, but I, I don't think we're gonna be going off in a lot of direction i hope we won't be going off a lot of uh directions or paths that uh, that don't lead anywhere
0: yeah i I, I, don't, I hope this isn't come across as being too political a statement but does feel like the the election deniers the the uh, right. candidates that were denying the 2020 election that president biden won election as president those folks still there's still elections to be decided here but generally they seemed to lose out in this election. They didn't do well. Like here in the state, of, in our home state of Pennsylvania, we had this fellow running for governor who was a very strong election denier. And he got creamed, you know, by the Democrats. It's very, very unusual in a, in a state like Pennsylvania, which is very definitively a swing state. There's red, there's blue, there's purple, there's everything. So that, I think that was pretty definitive. Dan, would you really agree with that statement? Was that, is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah, I think some, I can't remember who did it. Somebody did the math and the, 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 the candidates who you know, across the House and Senate races who generally were more in the, the January 6th camp seem to lose more often than than they won. I think there's only a very few of them that won. Um, but I think your point about Pennsylvania is a great point because, you know, Do- Dr. Oz and John Fetterman were razor thin and the governor obviously was a, which was a much wider margin. I can't remember. I'd have to go back and look, but I can't remember a wider margin in the governor's race for Pennsylvania for a very long time
0: you know i joke my wife determines presidential elections because we live in chester county pennsylvania chester county is the really purple county populous county just west of the city of philadelphia which is obviously bright bright blue but it's very purple and my street is half republican half democrat and i know it because i can see it on those on this with the signs and Uh, It's all about turnout on that street in Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania then Chester (laughs) County determines Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania determines. So I often joke all these candidates should just be, you know, talking to my wife, you know, convincing her one way or the other uh, about the election. But anyway. So, okay, so the most likely scenario is uh, divide. It's divided government. The Senate is we don't know. That's a toss up. But what really matters here is the House flipping to Republicans, and that feels highly likely at this point. So let's use that as our basis for discussion. And uh, Dan, if that's the scenario, what does it mean for policy? You know, what does it mean for what gets done over the next couple of years, particularly economic policy, obviously?
2: It means not a lot gets done, um, which may be more of a feature than a flaw. I mean, especially with inflation as high as it is right now, we've been talking a lot about I think there's a lot of people coming out and saying, you know, fiscal policy should be helping the Fed, helping to make the Fed's job easier. Um, Fiscal policy hasn't helped the Fed at all. Um, I mean, we had the student loan stuff. We had a couple other things that just kind of piling on and and not making things easier. For better or worse, not being able to do anything other than keep the lights on is, you know, probably a, a blessing over the next year, year to two years as we go into the 2024 election. That said, there's still a lot of risk out there that we can't physically do anything, which would be too bad because we need to, there's some things we need to do to keep the lights on. We can't just send everybody home for two years. We've got to have the debt ceiling has got to be increased, which is going to be hairy, especially in the house. We've got um the, the continuing resolution, which has to be extended. Hopefully it'll be extended during the lame duck, but um we'll see. There are some things that just have to get done. And God forbid, we we're you know we're talking about the odds of a, a real recession as opposed to kind of the slowdown or you know growth recession that we've got in the baseline. If things get really off the rails, you're going to have to really convince a lot of uh, very reticent folks to authorize additional funding if we go into a, a deeper business cycle than we're expecting.
0: Okay, so the the, the last this, the Congress that's just ending the first mm-hmm. two years of the Biden administration that was action packed, a lot of drama but a lot of stuff got done. You, know, you got the American Rescue Plan, you got the infrastructure bill, you got the CHIPS Act, which uh, you know provides support to the semiconductor industry to come here and produce here at home. And of course, the Inflation Reduction Act around climate risk and prescription drugs, that kind of thing. So lots of things actually at the end of the day, got through the legislative process because that was a unified government that was democratic control. And even though the Democrats only had a five seat majority in the house, they were able to pull it together and get that through. I mean, again, a lot of drama, reconciliation, so forth and so on, but they got it done. And what you're saying is now with a divided government, even if the Senate remains democratic because the house is Republican, we can't, it's
2: hard to see anything getting done, you know, at all. It's hard to see anything getting done unless it really has to get done. Um, and again, I think that's a good thing because you know you said that it's been action packed. There's been a lot of drama, but probably too much <laughs> has gotten done in the last two years. And I think I know not everybody would agree with that, but some of us would say there's well, too much. That, that right?
0: definitely depends on. That's a political statement. That yeah, I mean, too,
2: <laughs> too much has been done in some cases, and especially with this fight against inflation, that may not be a bad thing to have our hands tied a little bit in terms of going into 2024
0: now now here's though the thing that worries me a little bit and this goes back to the last time we had divided government under president obama uh and uh you know we got into a real brinkmanship over over two things one is the uh funding the government so we, we you know the government has to pass these funding bills to keep the lights on to pay workers and you yeah payout program um, do the things that the government does and that legislation isn't passed and there's no funding the government shuts down and i think we've had i think we had one big one under obama and we had two under trump actually a small one and a big one Mm -hmm. i can't even remember why i think it was over immigration policy and the building the wall that kind of thing and then the and then the other thing to worry about here is probably even much more important is the debt limit you know that that an anachronistic law, so maybe I'll, I'll stop there. Turn it back to you, and maybe you can explain those things, and handicap them. Should we be worried about that in the in the context of of history? That you know, last time we were looking at this kind of government, we had these kinds of problems.
2: Sure. Yeah, I think what it means is we have to go back to our slide decks from 2018 and 2013 and <laughs> dust off our our uh, our shutdown charts again. But the, the first one that you mentioned, you know, if you can kind of use our our we have our. I don't even know what it's called. A risk matrix, or what what could possibly yeah. go wrong matrix. We've yep. got the y-axis, which is the likelihood of something happening, and the x-axis, which is the severity. If I was to put the um, the government shutdown, the, it'd probably be middle of the y-axis in terms of likelihood, and it would be very low in terms of severity. Um, very different than you know, twenty I think twenty thirteen was the last well, the first time we really had that government shut down since Gingrich did it in the, in the mid-90s. It's we found ways around making it as, as harmful as it was. There's some really bad regional economic things, and we we you know work very closely with the states of Maryland and Virginia, and they're always very concerned about that because it had a big impact on their regional economy. But if, if the government shutdown doesn't last more than, you know, a couple of weeks, it's not a huge macroeconomic event anymore. Unfortunately, we become kind of immune to, to that kind of government.
0: I, I think just to put a finer point on that, I think based on those previous shutdowns, we estimate that if the shutdown is less than a couple of weeks, it doesn't, doesn't register. But if it, right. it goes into week three and four, each additional week shaves about a tenth of a percent off of
2: GDP in, right. in that
0: quarter. Yeah, that, so that's...
2: The third week small, is small, but yeah, but, but you can measure it. Yeah, the third week is really key because that's when people start to miss paychecks, right? And if you missed one or two paychecks, even if you're getting your back pay, it's going to really create some issues. And if we're in a weak economy already or a weakening economy already, then that's something that could really kind of make the difference.
0: Right. Okay. But you're saying, okay, the shutdown, that's possible. And you're saying not kind of a reasonable probability, kind of halfway up that risk, so like a you know, 50 percent probability, something like that. Yeah, it's it happened.
3: Right.
0: Yeah. No, it might not be that big a deal. If it's short, if it's longer, the longer it goes, obviously the bigger the, the deal. And the bigger the deal, the weaker the economy is. If that you know, it depends on the state of the economy at the time.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And what really kind of matters is, and this is probably what's going to happen, it's probably going to end up with some type of continuing resolution. And that's just the way that we budget nowadays, which is terrible. Um, but what that does is it doesn't give the folks in the agencies a lot a whole lot of uh, certainty going through the next couple of years, and it really can decrease productivity, can decrease hiring in some of those government agencies, which doesn't give us a whole lot of, of uh, juice from an economic standpoint. So it's not ideal, but it's probably what's what's going to happen, and it's it's not going to cause a recession or, or be a huge macroeconomic effect. The second one that you talked about, though, that's the one that is very, low, hopefully very low in terms of the likelihood I'd put it at maybe a third on the y-axis. A but third,
1: in terms of, that's, yeah, but that's in terms too high of, for me.
2: It's a third? for me, one-third? <laughs> One third? <laughs> yeah. A third 30. probability wow. or a third <laughs> of
3: the way up that axis? A third
2: of the way up that axis. And remember this is a totally I don't know objective the scale, axis, yet. right? There's no objectivity in this at all, but you put the, you know, the, the, the impact on the extreme, right? On the x-axis it's all the way to a hundred, right?
1: Oh, what's yeah. your probability straight up?
2: Straight up. What's your probability? Yeah. If yeah. I was to put a probability straight up, I'd say, uh, I'd say 10%. Okay.
1: okay. Okay. That's still too high. That's still high. Yeah.
2: It's way higher. <laughs> 0.01 is too high. It's the dumbest thing that we have in all of government is that debt, the, the debt ceiling. Okay. Explain what the debt ceiling is. So the debt ceiling, the US government works differently than all of the states work and that most other governments work around the world, which is where- Uh, We basically have to have a vote of Congress every time we want to increase our credit card limit. So if you had a credit card at home, imagine that on all the money you've already spent, right, you eventually get to say, you know what, I'm not going to pay back my credit card. I'm not going to pay back my debt. So they have to increase the credit limit. Otherwise, the Treasury can't borrow any more money in order to pay off the debt that we already have. And basically what you have under the worst case scenario is you have a a sovereign default by the United States, which creates... uh, unspeakable amount of uh, bad things in the the financial markets, financial markets would melt down. I mean, there's no no discussing it. It would be just about the worst thing that the federal government could do. Um, Hopefully that never happens. And I think most people in in government would say that hopefully that never happens. But with such a razor thin majority in the House and some people in the House who I think would genuinely want to take us over that waterfall, uh, it, it, i think it's higher than it's been for quite some time
1: in terms yeah, of
2: question do you see that for... oh,
1: sorry uh, if i can a uh, quick question related to that what's pre- is anything preventing the uh, dems from passing it now in the lame duck session why wait uh, and...
2: So in the senate they would need they would need republican help in the senate to do it why Reconciliation. They could do a reconciliation bill. They could do it under reconciliation, but I don't think they would for a couple of reasons. One, because that means that the Republicans can use that tool in the future and Dems wouldn't be able to use the debt ceiling as a as a lever the yeah. same way that Republicans would. Yeah. But two, I, so far as I understand it, there is some dubiousness about whether or not it is possible to do a reconciliation. Oh, you mean
0: yeah. the rules under reconciliation may preclude a piece of legislation that would obviate the debt limit.
2: Yes. And again, I'm not a, a constitutional scholar or a parliamentarian, but so I don't know that I can definitively comment on that, but I've heard people make very strong arguments both ways. So I don't know that the Democrats are all that confident that they can do it under reconciliation. Yeah. Just to make this
0: clear to the listener. So under reconciliation, the this, this is an arcane another arcane budget rule that allows uh the uh, party uh to pass a, a piece of you know, this is being lame duck when the house is still democratic get it through the senate under 50 votes because a vice the vice president would vote in favor right and you could uh pat you don't need you don't you don't have to worry about the filibuster you and you can do one reconciliation bill each fiscal year. year, and of course, this fiscal year just started in October one. So you, you mm-hmm. could argue, okay, we could use a reconciliation bill, but there are some rules around what you can use reconciliation for, and and so that's what you're saying. There might they, they might not be able to do it, even if they wanted to do it, and and they may not be able to do it because all you need is one Democratic senator saying, I don't want to do that for whatever the reason is. Like Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, did that for a long time with regard to the 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 two reconciliation bills that got through uh, or at least the second one the first one the american rescue plan that got through under reconciliation pretty easily i think it was the second one which ultimately became the inflation reduction act that
3: took
2: took two years to get done basically because of one senator right yeah one one the, the the margin is right now where one senator can hold the whole bill up and hold the whole thing hostage so
0: yeah okay
2: um I do worry, here's the thing that worries me,
0: and I think I, I do worry about the probabilities as well. I'm not sure I put it 10%, but maybe, is um, I, I do remember testifying in uh, the Senate uh, and Rand Paul, the Republican senator from Kentucky, was openly um, contemplating uh, a debt limit breach. And his, his thinking was, oh, you know, we can decide who we want. We can prioritize the you know who the, the who gets paid and when they get paid, and we don't necessarily have to pay Chinese. debt. He didn't say Chinese debt holders. I'm you know I'm extrapolating. He was just saying I can we can we can navigate around the debt limit. No big deal. And I found that terrifying <laughs> because let me let me just think about it for a second. You're a Japanese. Bond holder and the Japanese own 1.2 trillion dollars of Treasury debt. I don't know how many did China, the Chinese is
2: probably close to a trillion. I'm not sure. I haven't looked recently. They've been spending theirs down. They're a much smaller share of overall Treasury debt. Okay, so it's it's 800 billion. I
0: don't still. I think they're
2: less than Japan now.
0: Oh yeah, I think they're the Japan's the largest largest holder. Yeah, uh, yeah, and even the Japanese are kind of getting a little wary of Treasury bonds in the context of a 145 yen to the dollar. But anyway. So put yourself in the shoes of a, of a bondholder from China, Japan, Middle East, wherever. And the uh, Congress, uh, congressman says to you, oh, don't worry, you're going to get your payment. We're not going to pay uh, uh, the grandma her social, full Social Security payment on time. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so the bondholder is going to run immediately. Interest rates are going to jump and we're going to be in a mess.
2: Even if bondholders get paid, if somebody doesn't get paid along that waterfall, it's a default. And, and if you if you made a promise and you didn't pay on it from a government, that's a default. And so the fact that you did that at any level of that waterfall, whether it's bondholders, whether it's people on Medicaid, people on Medicare, you only have to do that one time and you're done. The, the, the rest of the people in that waterfall are not going to trust you again. And that's the real cost of this because so much of the, the global financial system is based on that U.S. treasury rate being the risk-free rate. But as soon as that goes out the window, all hell's going to break loose in the financial market.
0: And by the way, this is why I love Alexander Hamilton. One of the reasons, right? Because he understood this principle. And uh, he, uh, back in the revolution, all the states issued debt to finance the Revolutionary War. At the end of the war, investors in those debt, they thought it was basically a gift. They, never, I don't think many thought they'd ever get their money back. And it was trade those that that was trading at pennies on the dollar. And the hedge funds at the time, the the analog to hedge funds today, you know, they weren't hedge funds then, but they were the analogs to hedge funds were going in and buying these 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 notes, you know, for treasury debt. And Hamilton said, "Okay, I'm going to buy all those notes back, hundred cents on the dollar, you know, to the hedge funds. And by so doing, establish the credit of the United States of America. You know, uh, we're we're the Lannisters of the world. We pay our debts." Emily, do you understand that reference? I got that one, yeah. Okay, you got that one. Uh, Chris, it's above Chris's head. He, just, yeah. he, didn't, no. he didn't get it. <laughs> he didn't get that. Everyone else did but Chris. That's okay. That's okay, Chris.
1: Once so, in a while, yeah.
0: Once in a while. That's true. I'm usually one where it goes over <laughs> the, my head like this. Uh, but anyway, we, we pay our debts on time. We pay our debts and we pay our debts on time. And by so doing, we pay the lowest interest rates in the world. We're the reserve currency on the planet with enormous benefit. Because we pay our debts. And as soon as you have any sh- shred of doubt that you're not going to get paid your money on time, you know, to the second that it's due, you've got a problem. problem. But anyway, I worry. I agree. I worry about that. I think that's something, to you know, that, uh, you know, come to the fore uh, here at some point in the next year. So I'm not so sure, Dan, I'd be as sanguine as you as, as saying, uh, it's OK, we don't do anything.
2: If it's well, so I think that one's going to get done. So we can argue about where it is on the y-axis. We all agree that it's like a thousand on the x-axis, right? It's it's infinity in terms of yeah. severity. But in terms of the fact that it's even a little bit up at all, regardless of where you would have it, is going to make some people nervous. It's going to make financial markets nervous. Because what will happen is in March or whenever we get around to the next debt ceiling is there's going to be brinkmanship and everybody's going to hand ring and you're going to be on CNBC talking all the stuff you just said. Uh, right about how bad it's going to be if this actually happens, and then at the last minute they'll make a deal. Right, that's what has happened traditionally over the last 10, 15 years. Well, here,
0: here's the thing though. Here's the thing that even worries me about that scenario, because you just articulated that everyone's thinking like you are. So markets aren't going to react at all. They're not going to react at all. Oh, no worries, no problem. It's a bluff. We'll take it right down yeah. to the you know the, uh, the the midnight hour, and we'll pass a piece of legislation. So there will be no signal from financial markets that anyone's at all concerned. And then the Rand Pauls of the world are going to say, I'm sorry to pick on Rand Paul. He's just, you know, because of what he said. Oh, look, financial markets aren't worried at all. And we go over the waterfall. By the way, I wouldn't use waterfall as a metaphor. I'd use, you know, cliff, you know, waterfall has this kind of nice, fuzzy connotation. (laughs) It's Cliff. It's Cliff we're going down. You know, it's like why Coyote what Wyoli, Wy, Wiley? Wiley. Wiley Wiley Coyote. Wiley. Emily, do you understand that reference? Wiley Coyote.
3: Yeah, per- more vaguely, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I thought I'm old
0: enough to understand cuz I watched those that's my that's what I watched when I was a kid. Wiley Coyote. I don't know
2: if it, they still work. I still show them to my kids.
0: Okay, very good. All right. Anyway, uh okay, so Emily, I got a question for you. Uh, with regard to uh, state, state, and local governments. Uh, but before I ask my question, is there, you know, what kinds of? You, as you said, we've got this, these, these uh, now states that are uh, dominated by one or the other party, and we could get to see a lot of things happening here. So, kind of, what's at the top of the list of things that could happen from an economic perspective?
3: I mean, the. Potential good part would be, you know, states have money still set to allocate from some of that federal spending. They maybe could get their act together well to, like, make sure that they allocate that. They get projects moving. They get infrastructure projects on the ground that could be, you know, effective state government moving along. What kind of is more concerning for me is that states have been kind of enjoying these huge windfalls of just having a ton of revenue come in lately. And I worry that, you know, having you know this consolidated government could maybe lead them to over over allocate overspend over rely on that money kind of continuing into the future whether that's new programs that they're funding or whether it's tax cuts we've already seen a lot of states passing tax cuts so i think continuation of that uh, amplification of that could be potentially concerning as we go into the next couple of years where they're not going to see that massive growth in tax revenue they've been kind of starting to rely on
0: Great. Good, good. But but there's no kind of one burning economic policy issue out there that That's the beauty of
3: state government is there's a yeah. huge amount of variation there. Yeah.
0: Okay. Dan, anything there you would add
2: that you would you might we might see at the state and local level? I think a lot of the things that you'll see that both parties are advocating for at the state, at the federal level and national level are gonna play out at the local level. They're gonna try it there first. And that's where you'll see, one, who's got the political, is that really winning in the political arena when they do that? And two, is it working economically? So, you know, the Republicans are going to try and have more tax cuts. The Democrats are going to increase a lot of these spending programs, especially on um, social services and things. And how that gains momentum up to the federal level is kind of usually how we get these, um, these federal programs eventually through one way or the other. So it'll be interesting to see who gains the momentum by doing that at the state level.
0: Hey, here's my question, uh, and I'm not sure I'm going to articulate this well, but uh, hopefully I get the, the, the gist of it across. Do you think we could see kind of self-selection going on across states where, you know, Republicans tend to go to start living in some, some red states and Democrats start living in, in, in blue states and we actually fracture? You know, one of the beauties of the American experience is that we're kind of a a hodgepodge. You know, we all melted together and we got Republicans and Democrats, got all kinds of ethnic groups, minorities, kind of all, you know, we've got communities and there is some uh, segregation going on across all these different groups. But generally, you know, we've had a mixing, right? And and actually much more so in recent decades because we've seen this massive flow of people from the Northeast and and uh, Midwest into the South and the West. And, and the, the country looks a lot more similar today demographically and industrially than it has ever been. But now it feels like it might be moving in the other direction that, you know, if you go take a look at the state of Florida, for example, it's turning increasingly red because you've got a lot more, it feels like Republicans moving into, I, I, I'm. this is just my sense of things. And I know, I'm not. the question is, is that happening? And is that something we should be worried about? And also in the context of the abortion laws, right? Because of these the biggest now distinction between states, you know, might be with regard to abortion laws and rights, and that could have very significant effects on you know who who wants to live where. Uh, is that some is that something you're observing? Is that something we should be worried about? What do you think, uh, Emily?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't. I want to look, go to like, look to the data on this. And I don't know that we have a clear cut idea of that at this point. I think, you know, this polarization, you know, obviously is concerning, obviously abortion rights are on a lot of people's minds right now, as far as choosing, you know, I think um, where they want to live, or I think Adam Caymans, who does our regional work has done some good work on like, whether that would impact where people want to want to go to college, which maybe could impact things on a longer term basis about where people settle. So I don't know that we're seeing it yet. And I, I, in the reverse, we've also seen some of these like rapidly growing cities, uh, thinking like Boise, Idaho, for example, where people are still moving to despite maybe not always aligning with the politics of the area. But so I think I don't have a good answer for this. It's something I definitely want to watch, um, yeah. but I don't know. It, it kind of depends also. I feel like in a, a bit this past election was a little bit of a repudiation of some of that extreme more extreme views so maybe there's some natural like checks there where if states don't get especially extreme maybe we won't see it manifest but i think it's going to depend how that plays out
0: yeah what do you think dan
2: am I, am I am i barking up the wrong tree no i think you're onto something i think it's interesting i think the the advent of remote work has just accelerated that a little bit maybe because people don't need to be they don't need to be by the industry right they can go work. A lot, of, a lot of folks, especially in the services industry, can go work wherever they want, right, um, in office using, you know, service industries. And I think we're seeing that. Um, it's, so it's not just the retirees moving from the Northeast to Florida or Texas. It's, you know, people with, you know, people in their 30s and 40s with jobs and kids moving into those places, which is interesting to see the demographics. And demographics is destiny, so it's going to play out. But I think near term, there's other uh, things that, at work. Florida is a great example. So um, Marco Rubio absolutely annihilated his opponent in the race yet the other day. And, and so did DeSantis. DeSantis, was, his margin was enormous. But what shocked the heck out of me was when we we're looking at the results, it was that Miami-Dade County, they did better than any Republicans done. And I can't remember when. And it's not that the demographics are there, right? It's a bunch of um, Hispanic voters who have started to vote um, red instead of blue, um, which is more of a messaging um, thing around those platforms, I think, than it is a uh, a real demographic story. So there's there's cross-current going both ways. And I don't know that we can tell just by looking at the voting data that, but if we look at the demographic data and how it plays out in the next 10, 20 years, it's going to be really, really interesting to see who the swing state is in, you know, five years.
0: Yeah, I think it'd be a good research topic. Uh, let's see if we can not kind of there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts here so it's hard to disentangle things but you know maybe we can uh, do a little work try to identify that there's kind of a you know if you look at net mig- uh, like migration state to state and have a have uh, a kind of a political variable as one of the explanatory variables and see if it's significant or not uh, in mm-hmm. terms of after controlling for everything else you know all the other things that Migration flows. It might well, be you
2: could do that. You could tie it into the. We have voter registration data by state that you could actually look at, and you could take that down to the county level. Actually, that'd be really cool to do. All right. Well,
0: so the listener, this is this is how we decide what research we're going to do. <laughs> these kinds of topics is kind of how it happens. Uh, Chris, anything else you want to add here uh, on on these issues uh, before we call it a podcast? Oh, we we got the game. I That's forgot the about game. the game. Statistics yeah. game. We got do the statistics game. We'll do that. We'll do that right. After you opine here, anything else you want to say?
1: No, I, well, I just I'm, I'm really interested in the last uh, study topic you brought up because I do think there are a lot of other cross current, like housing or being locked into your homes. So you, yeah, you know, can people even move to places that they might want to move to, uh, given the housing situation? So I think there are a lot of other considerations, so there'd be an interesting regression. And also there's
0: confounding factors like, you know, you could say, I think, and I I don't think I'm mischaracterizing, but older populations tend to be a little bit more Republican, younger populations, a little bit more Democratic. And uh, you got a lot of retirees now moving to, you know, places like Florida and maybe it's age and it's not. But we have
3: age. We have the net migration data by age, so we no, could actually No, I know, I know, but I'm just that. saying yeah. you got to control for that. Yeah.
0: You got to control yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. It gets, gets
1: uh, difficult to disentangle. But
0: anyway, okay, let's play the game. See, how can I forget that man? Um,
1: who wants to We've go? We've had first? listeners waiting for the last hour know, just to get to this game.
0: And I've got a few. I know we have a few good ones. Uh, Chris, you want to go first? Just show
1: us how it's done. Uh, sure. Thirty-nine point one.
0: 39.1. It was um uh, is it related to uh the election? I'll,
1: no, but it is 39. I'll give you units, 39.1%, just in okay. all fairness.
0: Uh is it a, a statistic that came out this week? Yes. Uh yes, that is one
1: of our uh our rules. It has to be this week, right? That was the rule.
0: Well, sorta. I, I can break the rule every <laughs> once in a
1: while.
0: Yeah, I'm allowed. Uh, is it from a survey? Yes. Is it from the NFIB survey? No. Is it from the University of Michigan survey?
1: Nope. Oh, is it the, um, the loan officer survey? Yes. Ah,
0: that's what it is.
1: Senior loan officer oh, opinion survey for oh what was 39.1%? Uh,
0: commercial uh, industrial uh, loans.
1: Heightening that, standards.
0: Yeah, Lending standards for C&I loans.
1: You wanna, for for oh, large and medium idea. customers.
0: But. Yeah. But you want to explain it?
1: Uh, sure. This is an indication that the uh lenders, the banks are getting uh much uh are, are tightening up on their credit, right? Uh, presumably out of fear of profitability and the ability of these uh of these uh, businesses to pay back. 39.1 is a high level of tightening, uh, and is one of our key uh, recession indicators, right? So we've uh, at this level we've always had a recession the, the the survey only goes back to 1990 i believe so we don't have many um recessions to compare against but this level of tightening is consistent with a uh, recession within uh, several months
0: and, and this is it uh, doesn't tell you the intensity of the tightening down and underwriting it's just directionally the underwriting Correct. has tightened. yeah
1: that's right that's yeah. right yeah
0: that's a good one that's a really good one um okay uh emily you want to go next Oh, by oh, yeah. the way, that was an example of teamwork, I thought, in terms of getting that one, right? Teamwork
2: makes a dream work.
0: But that no one wins a cowbell based on teamwork in this game. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Very individualistic uh, thing. But, but anyway, good one. That was a good one. Emily, you're up.
3: Okay, I think this should be an easier one because I didn't want to start this off.
1: Oh, anytime you preface it with this should be an easy one. We're doing no, but like looks, actually. Looks, uh, ridiculous. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um
3: 0.75.
0: Is that from the CPI report? Mm-hmm. It, is that a yes? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, You, you got to say yes. You got to say yes. Yeah, I
3: forget that <laughs> this is going to be audio for most people.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and your nod was kind of a very, very... Um, it is definitively,
3: oh. positively from the CPI report.
1: Nice. Okay. Okay.
0: Is there any difference? Up, uh, Point four is it a month-to-month increase?
3: Yes. Okay.
0: Oh, wow. is it one of the components of the CPI? Yes. Is it housing related?
3: Yes.
1: Rents?
0: Oh, housing related. Uh, okay. So it was the the cost of housing uh, uh,
1: services?
3: Yeah, it's just the top line there. Um, top CPI shelter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Top.
1: Oh, line. shelter. Okay. Shelter.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I I I, don't, I think. Uh, what do you think, Chris? What do you think of that statistic?
1: How, How did you get the second digit?
3: I went into fame and oh, I looked at to, the oh. non seasonally adjusted because oh, I okay. figured if okay, I just that, gave the uh, right. rounded right. one, it would be a little Fair easier. Enough. So that was
1: yeah. a little tricky. Way to
2: throw Chris off, just add a decimal point. Yes.
1: Well, I looked, I looked at the report. extra precision.
3: It's extra I looked at the
1: report. That's right
3: yeah good. Uh, you remember that for next. Well, time. hold on. Be, uh, it,
0: I think they don't give you the second significant. Did you do that?
3: But it's an index, right? So like if you look at the percent change in the index, then that'll give you another digit. If you go in fame there, if you go into Carl's and do the percent it, change. Yeah, yeah, Carl's team
2: does it tomorrow
0: more. We've than got
3: months. it banked. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Uh
0: okay, very good. Because in the, the I think in the CPI report itself, they round down to point seven, don't they? Mm-hmm. They don't round it to point eight.
3: I think yes. yeah. I,
2: yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Um Tricky. Okay, Dan, you're okay. up. You guys are up. <laughs> All right, my number is forty-three point four billion, with a B. Forty. What is it? Forty-four. Forty-three point four billion. Is
0: that how much? Forty-three point four billion. Is it related to the election? Mm,
2: no. It's a. It is a release that we cover on Dismal that came out this, or on e- Economic View that came out this week. Is it related to the Treasury budget? It is. Oh. Um, Bernard's not here, so I had to, to stump you guys that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: It, is well, it something about the space left under the debt limit, or no. don't even know what the magnitude would be on that? Well, we
0: got we got the October Treasury report this week, and it was the first month of the fiscal year, and. 43.4 I don't I I think the deficit was it was it a p- positive 43.4 or negative It
2: was a positive
3: 43.4
2: Is it how much we spend on interest in the month? It is it's the net interest paid out by Treasury Oh that the, that No like, um, a good okay. cowbell.
0: That is a cowbell baby. Oh that's impressive.
2: That was impressive. That was Who impressive. got
0: that right? I'm just asking.
2: Well, you didn't (laughs) didn't specify who was gross or net. I said (laughs) it. down by that.
0: Not a trick question.
2: That is one and a half times more than we spent last October.
0: Is that right? Wow. Yes. Can I ask? I mean, in my mind's eye, uh, I have interest expense is uh, the federal government is 2% of GDP.
3: And that's low.
0: That's low by historical standards. I mean, when it gets above like four or five, that's when alarm bells go off because that then you can say we're spending more on interest than on defending our country, which doesn't make sense to anybody. And we do something on the deficit.
2: What that forty three point four? What would that would be? So CBO and OMB over the summer both projected that it would be about. Just over 2%, like 2.3% this year. But that's way stronger than CBO and OMB assumed when they did their interest rate forecast over the summer. So it's possible. So, just for context, in 2022, we ended up spending like $440, $450 billion on uh, interest that year or the previous fiscal year. If we keep going at that rate, we're going to be over $600 billion this year, which wow. would be the highest we've paid, I think, ever on,
1: on the debt. Yeah, but
0: yeah, okay. Okay.
2: But as a share of GDP, it's yeah. closer to 3%, I think. Okay.
0: But still, that, I mean, it's creeping up. Two is low, five is a problem, three is yeah okay, but moving in the wrong direction, obviously.
2: Well, the the reason people are freaking out about it is if you look at the the total number, that's 600 billion, which me- that means by 2025, 2026, you'd be over, you could be over 700 billion, which is actually more than we spend on national defense, which is a nice kind of yeah total point that everybody's going oh my gosh we're spending as much on this as we are in defense and so people are paying attention but it's one of the reasons why i think it'd be very hard to convince some folks to um, come along with anything that has to do with fiscal policy over the next two years other than keeping the lights on
3: yeah
0: yeah no i think on both sides of the aisle, there's a lot of increasing angst about the deficit and debt yeah for sure in a a high rate environment for sure i mean historically you didn't worry too much of Interest rates, long-term rates, were below nominal GDP growth because if you had that situation, then the debt to GDP would decline. But now, nominal you know, potential GDP growth, you know, interest rates are about equal to nominal potential GDP growth, and so you don't have that. Benefit. You can't you can't rely on that anymore. It's going to become much more difficult. Uh, I'm not going to give. Uh, we're running out of time. I've got a hard stop, so you uh, you'll have to wait till next week to get my my uh my statistic but that was that was very good i really appreciate it you can tweet
1: it, it out uh, i'll
0: yeah. tweet it out um yeah. that was a great conversation very informative and uh the other thing i didn't ask the biggest news of course was chris going from 70 to 67 percent was a huge deal that was the biggest news of the week uh from my perspective so uh, but, uh <laughs> we'll we'll uh, any any last words of wisdom before we call it a podcast Hearing none. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, guys. Uh, Thanks, everyone. Talk to you next week. Take care now.